1: Welcome to the Sportacosts Football Stories podcast. I'm Craig Resnick Hansen. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to legendary commentator Ian Dark. On top of his work in boxing and athletics, Ian has been a giant of the football broadcasting world for more than three decades. We asked him what's changed in the industry over the years, what advice he would give to a budding broadcaster, his strangest moments in the booth, and much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our chat with the one and only Ian Dark. Ian, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on today. I know you're a busy man, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I'm going to get straight into it. First of all, um, if you could tell us a little bit about your beginnings in broadcasting. I did a little bit of research. I can see that it seems that not only football, which I know a lot of us know and love your work from, uh, but you also were sort of, um, you've been big in boxing for a long time. But Boxing and football were both sort of your introduction, would you say, into sports broadcasting?
0: Uh, No, news was my introduction into sports broadcasting. In fact, if you want to go even before that, I did a hospital radio commentary when I was 18 (laughs) on a Portsmouth game. Never thought about broadcasting again until I joined Radio Leicester um, and did a few years there doing news and sport. And then I went to the BBC Radio Sports Room in London and that, by accident was how I started to commentate because Desmond Lynham was the boxing commentator for BBC radio, the great Desmond Lynham, but he was off the TV. They needed somebody to do it. And I got the job commentating first of all on boxing. And of course I went on to do football and a bit of athletics as well.
1: Unbelievable. I think our listeners are starting to learn a little bit that um, this is popping up more and more people sort of accidentally falling into this field. We, we spoke to Darren Fletcher from TNT sports and he had a similar story as well, that he never really had any ambition to be um, a football commentator and and it just sort of happened. Um, I guess, when did you realise that the ball had really started rolling and that you were sort of a a main fixture in the ears of the public as far as football goes? As far as football
0: goes... I suppose you'd say I'd already commentated on the World Cup Italian 90 for Eurosport, but I don't think an awful lot of people, to be honest with you at that time, saw that in England. So I suppose if there was a breakthrough moment, it would have been commentating when Sky Sports started. Martin Tyler used to do the Super Sunday games, as they call them, and I did the Monday night football, which was A bit more of a gimmicky production, though we covered the games just the same way. So I used to commentate with Andy Gray in the very first season of the Premier League on Sky Sports.
1: So I gained probably a little bit of profile doing that. Did you ever work with Martin or was that something that because you were both, I guess, lead commentators? Yeah,
0: no, we never worked together. None of the lead commentators have ever worked together, maybe on some kind of video game somewhere, if somebody wants to invent that kind of setup. But no, it would always be you as the main play-by-play commentator, as they like to say in the United States, and then a professional footballer or ex-player alongside you. In my case, to begin with, Andy Gray, but I've worked with, well, dozens of them over the years.
1: I know you've worked with some of the the biggest names and some of the most beloved football commentators over the years. Um, I know you probably don't want to necessarily pick favourites, but did you feel that you had a particular chemistry with um, one or two of them that you'd like to mention?
0: I think I'd like to think that you work hard on having a rapport and a bit of chemistry, as you rightly call it, with everybody. And I think that's a vital thing in commentary because I've heard some commentaries and I'm not going to mention any names or or times because we've all been there, I think. But it sounds like two people who might have been sitting on opposite sides of the stadium for all the rapport <laughs> there is between them. So you need the co-commentator put to play along a little bit. You're not looking to turn it into some kind of vaudeville act. But if there can be a little bit of crossfire between you, so much the better. So, y- yeah, you mentioned some of the people. I mean, these days... Um, I like all the fellas I work, and they're all a little bit different, and they all prepare a little bit differently as well. So more recently, I've done quite a lot with Glenn Hoddle, Martin Keown, until about a year ago, Robbie Savage, and and Steve McManaman. I probably work with Steve more than I've worked with anybody else. And We used to do a breakfast kind of show, um, Free SPN in America. About a decade ago, which got a bit of a cult following, it was a low-budget thing that went on early morning in America on the the lunchtime kickoff in the UK, and as well as doing the game, we'd also answer letters and emails from people. Odd things. One of them, one of the questions was, "What is love?" <laughs> Imagine talking about that. Last time. But anyway, this became a this became a bit of a cult thing in the United States.
1: Well, you mentioned the United States there. This is something I really wanted to touch on because a lot of our listenership will be familiar with your work in the UK, of course, but working for ESPN and Fox, would you say what are the differences between working on British TV and working on US TV when it comes to covering football in particular? Not so much of a difference these
0: days. I think going back 20 or 30 years, you were probably talking to an audience who weren't overly familiar with the game. Let's put it this way. The, the first time I did any matches for the United States audience was the 1994 World Cup, which was staged in the USA, just like the next one is going to be. And I remember on one of the early games, one of the producers who normally produced baseball and American football and that kind of thing, uh, I said, 20 minutes gone, it's still nil-nil. And he came into my headphones and said, you mean zero-zero. By the way, Ian, you better explain what this <laughs> offside's about. So... It it was all a bit like that in those days. But these days, you know, the kids in America now, uh, the young guys um, and and young girls, too, who play a lot of the game, watch all the European leagues. Um, It's all available to them. They watch the Premier League as well. And it's a very informed audience, just the same as the United States team is a pretty respectable team who have to be taken seriously, as England have found out a couple of times.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've gone far in multiple competitions and that they're always in and around qualifying out of the group, that's for sure. Um, You've had a long and storied career, which is still going on at the top level. Do you have any advice to sort of budding football or sports more generally broadcasters? Yeah, I'd say
0: if you want basic kind of guidelines, and, and I, I don't want to play the role of being some guru or doyen of the sport because a lot of the young fellas coming through are very good and they've got their own style, and that's important. Don't try to be like another commentator you might admire. Be be yourself on air, but I think there are some, some real good guidelines. I think one of the most underrated qualities you can have is have some warmth be a good guest in people's living room. Don't be some bore spouting loads and loads of stats that they don't want to know about the game. You can over-prepare the match. The, the key is, I think, to watch a football match and let it tell the story to you and pick up on those stories. I think you've got to have a pretty good editorial brain. You've got to know where what the narrative of the game is. Uh, you've got to have gears. You've got to uh, change the mood. Sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's quiet. And you've got to know where it's almost like driving a car on a, on a country road. You you have to kind of be able to drive that car and have a feel for how it might be sounding in somebody's living room. Because I've often watched a game, I'll be honest with you, and I thought, you know what, if I was at home, it's raining here, it's Monday night, it's goalless, it's been a terrible game, I'd be looking to see what else was on TV. <laughs> yeah, but It's up to you as the commentator there to be able to be bright enough and involve the audience enough in what might be about to happen or some kind of subplots to keep them interested.
1: Yep. That makes sense. Uh, you mentioned the sort of introduction to the industry of some of the new guys coming up, which is obviously the, you know, the the circle of life, some commentators finish, new commentators come in, but you've been through so many different eras of football commentary. What would you say has changed about the business since you first arrived? Um, Well, the
0: access, sadly, isn't what it used to be. It used to be a big event if the football match was on the television. So the clubs would react to that. It was a bit of a novelty for them as well. So you'd ring the manager. He might even invite you along to the training. I remember going and seeing Southampton train when Alan Ball was the manager. A few other clubs as well. Um, They'd invite you in for a cup of tea before the game. Probably give you a little insight in what the team was going to be, even though most managers feed that information like it's a state secret and still do. So. <laughs> yeah, Rightly yeah. so. These days, it's all become much more corporate. I think the media are kept at much more of a distance. I'm sure all the, the football journalists would tell you this as well. They have to organize everything through the PR guys. So We don't get that kind of access anymore. There are no more cups of tea with managers beforehand. And if I went up to Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho and said, could you give me a bit of a steer on your team for tonight? Uh, I'll put it in my pocket, keep it to myself. They would look at me as if I'd just arrived from Mars, if I'm honest with you. So that isn't a question. (laughs) I mean, you just hope you've got a few contacts in the background at the club who might be able to just give you a bit of information about certain players who aren't going to play in this game because they're not ready yet. They picked up a knock-in training or to watch because this kid's doing pretty well and he might be on the bench for this game and so on. But it's it's become a lot harder. And what I think it's the hardest era to commentate on the game in because the five substitutes rule, you're changing half the players. In some games, half the outfield players are changed. So you've got the players in your head. Now it's a completely different chorus line out there. There's that. There's the whole VAR complication. There's so many more foreign players. So the pronunciation is a bit more of an issue than it would have been. (laughs) I could go on. I mean, it's just become a lot more complex. We've got to watch that because the whole essence of football is that it's a simple and dramatic game. We don't want to keep on adding, I don't think, layers and layers of things which will dilute the drama as they're starting to do.
1: No, it's something that's troubling a lot of fans out there 100% because it really is becoming overly complicated and difficult to follow, I think, in a lot of cases and I can't speak to being a audio commentator in any sense, but as a live text commentator, I can tell you it's the, the same thing. It's, you know, you're, you're sort of you're trying to, um, you know, as quickly and as sort of eruditely as you can sum up the the vital action of what's going on, and also you're like, oh, okay, they're bringing on three subs now because uh, they've got five. Oh, and there's a VAR check, so the goal that I just reported on isn't real anymore, and I don't need to change. It's complete chaos at times, especially if it's a game that's very, you know, um, you know, sort of rife with that kind of action going on. I can imagine that uh, in the commentary booth, it's it's uh, even worse. Um, but I wanted to touch on another thing. <laughs> Um, sorry, sorry, yeah, oh, so, sorry to cut you off,
0: Ian. Um, I was going to say I was working with Stuart Robson and Don Hutchison recently, and I said it's almost got to the stage now where we need a secretary sitting alongside us to keep a note <laughs> of all the players <laughs> who left it.
1: I can believe it, um, especially if you're covering a game where you're maybe not so, uh, you know, completely aware of of the two teams. You know, like I've covered a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, women's football from the from Australia and New Zealand. Uh, you know Afcon games, and and maybe if it's a game where it's not sort of the big hitters in the tournament, uh, you know, you do your prep and everything, of course. But it it makes you doesn't make your life easier when there's constant substitutions going on, uh, in the second half at least. But um, I just wanted to touch on one thing, which is one of the big things that's got to have changed since the early nineties and the the sort of beginning of the Sky era is the introduction of social media, and we spoke to Darren Fletcher about this about. To what extent do you, um, you know, look at social media? Because, of course, I'm sure you've always been, uh, you know, open to criticism of your work, or I'm sure people have always given you feedback in different ways. But nowadays, it's so easy for people to go on social media and, you know, be less than kind about your work. Um, you know, Darren Fletcher told me he keeps it at arm's length for that reason. What's your approach to social media, and have you had any sort of pitfalls as far as uh, you know its toxicity at times?
0: Um, Well, I think you've picked a very good word there, Craig, toxicity. So I think keeping at arm's length is a very, very good idea indeed. In fact, not to look at it at all because so much of it really, and I hate to say this, is tribal nonsense. Most people's views of the match, if one of their uh, teams is involved, is they're seeing the whole game through uh, that-coloured spectacles. So it's best really not to upset yourself because – that is another thing about, you're you quite right to point this out, Barry Davis and Brian Moore and, and John Watson, bless him, um, in that era, they didn't have to put, put up with this, their work being ripped apart by people <laughs> on Twitter. But I think over time, you learn to just take it all with a bit of a pinch of salt, to be honest with you, because... Some people like what you do, other people don't. And I've always said the same thing. One person's great commentator is another one's pain in the neck. Um, And that's how how it is. I suppose you'd worry if everybody talking about you (laughs) thought that you were absolutely rubbish. But, um, you know, basically, my, my message is to the people... There's not really much point in contacting me about what you think about my commentary during a game because I just don't look at it.
1: Yeah. And uh, you talked about tribalism there, which is, uh, you know, has always been there, I'm sure, but with social media, it's heightened. Um, I know that you, I don't know if you follow any particular club or if you'd ever want to, you know, sort of divulge that kind of thing. It didn't come up in my research. But I know that obviously you've covered plenty in England game, which I'm sure, obviously, you have, you know, an allegiance to England. Is it at all difficult to sort of separate yourself from, you know, not just cheerleading for the nation and actually presenting accurately what's going on on the pitch when you're covering an England game?
0: No, that's not difficult at all. And and you asked the question and I've, I've never tried to keep it a secret. I was born in Portsmouth, so I support Pompey. Um, Always have done all my life. It's ruined many a Saturday. I've only had to commentate on. Probably When they're in the Premier League, i probably commentated on them three or four times during that seven years. And what you do is you almost overcorrect, if anything. Um, so you, you mark your support when you enter the commentary box or, or go up onto that, that gantry. Same with England. Yeah, deep down, you want them to win. But really, when you're calling a football match, you're calling Team A against team b and to all those critics and and every commentator who's done the job will tell you they've been accused of being biased by the supporters of both teams and i always say the same thing in response look it's hard enough calling the game without wondering who's you know what worrying about who's going to win it
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely like you say every commentator has gone through that it happens pretty much daily on twitter um as as we wrap up here um what would you say? A lot of times, I think, um, you know, commentators get asked in interviews or pundits get asked, you know, the, the sort of greatest moment of your career. You've had so many that, you know, I think we all already know them. We've listened to them. But what would you say has been this, one of the strangest moments of your commentary career? Can you think of any particular game that you've covered around the world where something's happened that was particularly memorable for you? I think
0: the strangest and weirdest. Game I ever covered was that World Cup semi-final between Brazil and Germany. Brazil were the host nation. And this was an incredible story. Brazil won Germany seven. And I remember I was commentating with Steve McManaman for ESPN in the United States and putting the microphone down at the end. And I said to him, people are going to still be talking about this game in 50 years time. I mean, it was incredible what happened there. And there was a surreal sense we kept looking at each other as the game was going on saying what on earth is unfolding in front of us here? Germany is scoring with every attack. It was like they were playing some university team, not Brazil. Um, So yeah, that was pretty weird. I mean, I'd pick out two. I I was lucky enough to cover that game in the champions league, the remontada where Barcelona scored three in the last seven minutes to come back and and knock out Paris Saint-Germain. That was pretty wild. Uh, That night, and I was there. Although, of course, it's Martin Tyler's commentary that everybody remembers of the the famous Aguero goal. But we were doing that too for the for the American audience. And um, what a moment that was! There will, I mean, Martin was right. He picked great words. Martin was right. Um, We'll we'll never see anything like it again. We
1: won't, I don't think. Absolutely not. I think you're quite right there. Um, The final thing I want to ask you is you've had an unbelievably illustrious career, but it's by no means over. What would you say you are looking forward to next, whether it's, you know, this year or whether it's any, you know, big international tournaments coming up? What has got you, uh, I mean, I guess for you, I I guess sometimes maybe it could uh, become a bit of a buzzman's holiday when you're sort of covering all these big competitions for your whole career, but What's really got you uh, excited for the next year or two? Well, you said that. I think
0: one thing is, no matter how long you do it, you can still improve. You can still get better. You must never think, hey, I've cracked that and get complacent because that can be like a football team that gets complacent. It can go horribly wrong on you. So concentration has to be at, at its maximum, I think, at all times. But um I don't know how illustrious a career I've had I've I've been lucky I've enjoyed it I've been to eight world cups and you know would I know a lot consider of...
1: that illustrious for the sidelines. Yeah, well, world cups.
0: Okay, but <laughs> okay, well, I see you to say so Craig but um yeah I st- I still love the game and I still look forward and I'm excited about covering games um even in my slightly uh, advanced years these days but I'm looking forward to covering the European Championships this summer. Particularly because England have got a rattling good chance of doing very, very well indeed. I'm not saying they're going to to win it, but I think they've got as good a chance as anybody of doing so with the with the squad we've got at the moment. So yeah, that's that's the next thing. And I don't think <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna to look too far beyond that.
1: Okay, and thank you so, so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. I know our listeners will too. Thank you so much.
0: Craig, it's been a pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you and um Yeah, keep on following the game and uh, I'm sure we'll all have a great time doing
1: it. Thanks a lot, Ian. Really, really, really appreciate it. Have a lovely evening and I can't wait to hear you again on the telly very soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Sportacost Football Stories podcast. It was such a pleasure talking to Ian. And we can't wait to bring you more chats with fans from across the footballing landscape, from ex-pros to bloggers, broadcasters, YouTubers, and more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing. If you really liked it, give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. That will help us out so, so much. Thanks again, and catch you next time on the Sportacost Football Stories podcast.